A reading from Genesis, the 29th chapter. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to met, beat him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilpah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one ancient hope there are few parts of Scripture, like the life of Jacob, that remind us that Scripture is not a book of heroes. Um, that it's a book of people like me and like you 
in desperate need of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And in light of that truth, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for its honesty and the way that it does portray our brokenness. But Lord, we thank you also for the hope that it gives, the hope that you have given us in the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in light of that hope that we pray and come before you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this passage, something interesting happens. We, we see the tables turned. Jacob, the skilled deceiver, now finds himself deceived. While he has cheated both his brother Esau and his father Isaac, Laban is of a different sort. Laban is, is cut from the same cloth as Jacob. Jacob will be bested, he'll be beaten, he'll be humbled. The deceiver will be deceived, the cheater will be cheated. And just as Jacob was able to trick Esau and Isaac because of their disordered desire and love for food, so Laban will be able to trick Jacob because of his disordered desire and love for Rachel. And toward that end, I, I want to look at this passage under two headings, Jacob's love for Rachel and Christ's love for us. Let's look at each in turn. Jacob's love for Rachel. From the very moment that Jacob sees Rachel, we see Jacob begin, uh, begin to act in a new way. We see a, a new recklessness that we haven't seen before in Jacob. The cold and calculated deceiver is suddenly overcome with desire for Rachel. Right away, we see Jacob kissing Rachel the moment that he meets her. And as readers, we should be surprised by this. As, as one Old Testament commentator points out, this is the only time in the Old Testament that we find a man kissing a woman who is not his wife or mother. And he's doing this right away when he first meets her. So what exactly is going on here? Well, there's a mid-20th century American theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, and I think he's quite, quite helpful here. Because he, he writes on what we might call romantic love and physical intimacy. And he also tells us how it can go wrong. We've talked a lot in this series about disordered loves, and this is exactly the framework that he uses. He calls improper sexual intimacy, or sorry, yes, he calls improper sexual intimacy, he calls it sensuality, sensuality. And I'm going to use that term too for the sake of, of clarity. Niebuhr explains that physical intimacy is not sinful in and of itself. It's, it's a good thing. But we sin when we love good things like this intimacy more than we love God. What happens is our loves become disordered and our actions no longer fit with God's created order of things. This good gift of physical intimacy then becomes sensuality. And Niebuhr says that sensuality, well, it falls victims to two dangerous kinds of love. First and foremost, sensuality falls victim to self-love. We come to love ourselves more than we love God. And other persons, well, they're simply reduced to the physical pleasure 
that they can bring us. The other person is instrumentalized into a tool, into an object of my pleasure. There's something that I use to love myself, just like I might eat a meal when I'm hungry. I'm simply fulfilling an appetite. However, Niebuhr says that there's more at play here, and I think he's right, because mere lust simply cannot explain our contemporary culture's worship of romantic love. Something else is going on. Countless movies, songs, novels, TV programs, they tell you that life is all about finding that perfect person, and if you can find that person, that will fix everything, and then you will live happily ever after. But Niebuhr wants us to step back and, and think about our culture's obsession with romance, and in particular with sensuality. He says, lust is not enough to explain everything that's happening. There must be something else at work, something that he calls, quote, deification of the other. He says this is trying to escape self-love by loving the other person with a kind of love that you should only love God with. You deify the other person. You make them God by loving them as God. Niebuhr writes the following, quote, The deification of the other is almost a literal description of many romantic sentiments in which attributes of perfection are assigned to the partner of love, beyond the capacity of any human being to bear, and therefore the cause of inevitable disillusionment, end quote. Niebuhr says that we are tempted to look at the other person at our romantic partner and put on them burdens that only God can bear. We're tempted to see that person as, as perfect. We're tempted to think that that person will save us. They'll save us from sorrow, from grief, from anxiety, from worry, from discontentment, from meaninglessness. If someone like that loved us, then we would be fine. And so we're tempted to worship that person. We're tempted to treat that person as our God and Savior. So you have to ask, can this dynamic actually help us understand what's going on here in this present account of Jacob? Is Jacob both loving himself as God and, and loving this romantic other, Rachel, as God? Can this help make sense of the passage? Well, I believe it can, and it actually helps explain much of Jacob's erratic behavior. Jacob is treating Rachel both as an object of his own pleasure and as an object of worship. Jacob is deep in the grip of sensuality. Recall last week in Genesis 28 that what Jacob desired more than anything else to, to was, uh, was to return home. If you remember, this was the complete and total focus of his prayer, yet here, when he first sees Rachel, he's willing to put off returning home for at least seven years. Home no longer has the greatest pull on Jacob's heart. Now what Jacob desires most is Rachel. And he is willing to go home much, much, much later if he can just marry Rachel. But he, only, he doesn't only desire Rachel, he, he also desires to be desired by Rachel. 
And how do we know this? Well, look what first happens when Jacob meets Rachel at the well. Jacob finds shepherds, and and there covering the well is a very large stone. And likely this was a stone that could only be moved by many shepherds working together. And this would ensure that only with the whole group could any one particular shepherd actually draw water from the well. However, we see from Jacob an amazing feat of strength. Upon seeing Rachel, Jacob is able to actually move the stone by himself, and he directly goes about watering the flock of Rachel. Jacob goes to great, great lengths here, and he does so in order to do something valiant for this beautiful woman. The young Jacob, who, when compared to his hunty, sorry, hunting and outdoorsy brother Esau, has never been considered a man of strength and courage, but he longs to be seen as just this in the eyes of Rachel. This young, this young man who was long ignored by his father thinks that if Rachel, if a woman that beautiful loves and desires me, then I will finally know that I'm not a waste. Then I will know that I'm not a second-rate son. Then I will know that I'm actually worthy of love. And respect. In Rachel's affections, in Rachel's desire for Jacob, Jacob seeks validation, meaning, worth, dignity, redemption. He seeks salvation itself. He seeks to be saved from the deep, deep wounds that he has long, long carried. And Laban, Laban sees all of this. Laban knows that Jacob desires Rachel so much that Jacob has lost its wits, and Laban is ready to take advantage of this. When Laban answers Jacob's request, Jacob's request to to marry Rachel, Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Notice here that Laban neither says yes or no. He simply says what would be better Laban might seem to be agreeing to Jacob, but actually Laban, as he sees it, has not committed himself to anything in particular. And so Laban, like Jacob before him, uses another's sensuality for the purpose of deception. In Laban, Jacob has met his match. But even here, Jacob cannot escape that self-love that seeks to treat the other as a tool, as an object, for my own physical pleasure. After completing his seven years, Jacob tells Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. And the text tells us that these seven years, well, they felt like a few days to Jacob because of his deep, deep love for Rachel, but... We also see here an intense physical desire motivating Jacob's actions. He demands that Laban give him Rachel right now that he might go into her. And even in the English, this comes across as a very graphic request. Jacob here is being quite explicit about the physical act that he desires. And so, yes, Jacob loves Rachel, He loves Rachel more than his father's house, more than returning home. 
he loves Rachel more than anything. He even loves Rachel more than God. But Jacob also loves himself more than God. And Jacob is restless and greedy for the physical pleasure that he seeks from Rachel. And this is exactly what he says to Laban. I mean, imagine saying this to the father of the bride. But as Niebuhr warns about sensuality, Rachel becomes both an object of physical pleasure and an object of worship. But it gets worse because here Laban does a truly horrible deed. In verse 23, we find, But in the evening Laban took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob went in to her. Yes, it's dark. Yes, Leah enters the tent with a veil. Yes, Jacob has likely drunk too much and his senses are dull. But is Jacob here completely without fault? That Laban's plan worked, hence that there is no conversation, no words of love shared between Jacob and the woman that he now finds in his tent. Jacob's self-love, his instrumentalizing, has here got the best of him. One simple conversation between the bride and the groom could have dispelled the whole trick. But Jacob has not come into the tent to talk. And in the morning, Jacob realizes that it's Leah and he goes on to confront Laban. He says, why then have you deceived me? And how does Laban respond? It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And this silences Jacob. It cuts him very, very deep. Just as Jacob tricked his own father, so now Laban is tricking him. Jacob, the secondborn who dressed up as the firstborn, has now been deceived by Laban's dressing up the firstborn as the secondborn. The deceiver has been deceived, and this deception, too, will lead to horrible family fallout. And a brief word here about the marriage arrangements in Genesis. If if you think that the text is actually condoning polygamy, the practice of having many wives, please, please, please read the text more closely. As we will continue to see, this marriage arrangement leads to terrible, terrible family problems. The Bible is showing us that this is not the way it's meant to be. And in the next chapter, we will see this lead to horrible bitterness between Rachel and Leah. In another word, the Bible is not condoning valuing women by a certain number of years of labor. In fact, this is the tool that Laban uses to ensnare Jacob. And we should also note that we ourselves have not moved beyond all of this. For example, uh, literature professor Alan Noble, in his excellent new book, You Are Not Your Own, he points out that we ourselves often operate with this same kind of tendency. He offers the example of of, uh, arguments that that, um, push for the legalization of prostitution. And he points out that, that more and more often, they are put forward with this notion of, quote, measurable harm. 
things that we can count and quantify. For instance, as, as one argument goes, if we legalize and regulate prostitution, then we can lower the number of venereal disease cases. And so we make the decision based on things we can count. We can count the number of infections. But as Noble writes, quote, we can't measure the loss in human dignity that occurs when a person sells their body. We can't even agree that human dignity is a thing or that prostitution is an affront to it, end quote. Noble points out that the matter of dignity does not even enter in the conversation. Dignity can't be measured. And policy, we assume, requires actual numbers. If we reduce the number of diseases, then that might be a very good reason, we think, for legalizing the selling of bodies, even when we know that all of this selling often happens by way of coercion. Laban may have valued his daughters at a certain number of years of labor, but in our thoughts, we do the same by weighing our daughters against a certain reduction of particular social problems. Seven years of labor, a projected 20% de decrease in this or that infection. Each, we think, is worth throwing out that uncountable notion of dignity. And of course, we can't forget the instrumentalizing of pornography that is rampant in our modern culture. Recall that Laban's planned work because Jacob had instrumentalized the body of his bride. There was no talking, there was no communion, no meeting of faces, only acts of the body. Well, what Jacob did in part, our modern culture has learned to do in full. As philosopher Roger Scruton writes of pornography, quote, the face is more or less ignored, and in any case endowed with no personality and made party to no human dialogue. Only the organs carry the burden of contact. Organs, unlike faces, can be treated as instruments. Pornography refocuses desire, not on the other who is desired, but on the act itself. Pornography diverts sexual feeling away from its normal course, which is commitment, and empties its existential seriousness. And Scruton ends with the following quote, pornography is sex education for life, as it were. Let us look seriously at ourselves and understand that we are not doing any better than Laban or Jacob. In fact, we have made whole industries built upon this exploitation and instrumentalization. And please hear this. If you struggle with pornography, whether you're male or female, please do recognize the danger. You are treating, training yourself to see others as tools for your own desires. The Christian faith is one that recognizes that we all fall short and all of us have treated others as tools for our own self-love. I encourage you to reach out to someone in the congregation, to me, to one of the elders, to someone you know well. Let us help you walk through the process of repentance and confession and forgiveness and growth in Christ. We all stand condemned without the work of Christ, so please do not let the fear of condemnation keep you from an important conversation. 
The church is not a place of condemnation. It's a place for those who know that we deserve condemnation but have not been condemned only and always because of the work of Christ. And that brings us to our second and final point, Christ's love for us. Aspects of this passage might strike you as familiar. Abraham's servant, if you remember, goes to a well and he meets Rebekah. And this meeting leads to the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. In the same way, going forward in Exodus, Moses himself will meet his wife Zipporah at a well. And examining these commonalities, the scholar of Hebrew literature, Robert Alter, says that this meeting at the well is a kind of type scene. And for Alter, a type scene is the presence of a particular set of, of people at a particular place, and they follow a certain roster of procedures. When these things are in place, when these things are happen, when these things happen, it's going to awaken certain expectations in the audience as to what is going to happen next. And in particular, this meeting at the well, Alter calls it a, a marriage or betrothal type scene. And Alter says in this particular type scene that we see in the Old Testament, five things happen. The man to be married or his representative travels to a foreign land. Number two, there he meets a woman or multiple women at a well. Three, someone collects water from the well. Four, the woman or women, they run back to the town to tell of the coming of the man. And lastly, number five, the man at the well or, or the person whom the man represents is married to that woman or one of the women in the group. And if you look at the interaction between Jacob and Rachel, this is exactly what happens. And it's interesting because Alter is not a Christian. He does not address the New Testament or Jesus. However, this marriage, this betrothal type scene, gives us an important lens to understand another meeting at a well. Many years after our present passage, another man will meet a woman at a well. This will happen in John chapter 4. Christ has left Judea and he's traveled into Samaria, a foreign region, en route to Galilee. Christ will meet a woman at the well. He will ask for a drink and eventually the woman will run back to her village to tell of the coming of this man. It follows the same marriage script. But who? Who does Jesus meet at the well? Well, he meets a woman who is of Samaritan race, and so someone who the Jews at Jesus' time had no dealings with. A woman who comes out to the well at the hottest part of the day when everyone else is safely inside, and so a woman who wants to be alone, who is isolated, who is on the social margins. A woman who has had five, five husbands, and who is living with someone now who is not her husband. A woman who is unwanted, a woman who has now been rejected by at least five different men, a woman who no decent person would ever consider marrying. For Jesus' Jewish contemporaries, a well would be the very last place where they would expect him to meet this woman. But this is exactly what he does, and so the scandal here is not one of conversation, but one of implied marriage between Jesus and a woman supremely offensive to his contemporary 
audience. Think about it. Think about how this type scene might strike us differently if, if we imposed it into a type scene that we're more familiar with. In a, a common betrothal or marriage type scene that we find uh, in, in Western culture is, is a woman standing on a balcony looking below at a man below her. Perhaps the most iconic version of, of this type scene would be Romeo and, and Juliet, where Romeo looks up to Juliet in the balcony, and he declares, But soft, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east, and Juliet is the sun. And if you think about it, even current films use this, this marriage romance type scene, and they apply it to modern architecture. Oftentimes in movies, you'll see a, a starry-eyed suitor, you know, standing on the sidewalk below the, the window of his beloved, throwing rocks at her window so she'll look out from her suburban perch. We know this type scene. And impose John 4 into this type scene, and you begin to feel a little bit of the scandal. But what can all of this mean? Well, in the present age, marriage is the most binding relationship that can hold two people together. A husband and wife are even said to be of one flesh. But as Paul writes of marriage in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so ultimately, we find in marriage a picture of Christ and his people, Christ and his church, Christ and his bride. And so Christ really does become the, uh, the bridegroom of the Samaritan woman. Christ really does become our bridegroom. Christ becomes the bridegroom of the church of all of those who place their faith in him. The church is the bride of Christ. And so we see a contrast here. What does Jacob seek in a bride? Well, he seeks someone to help Jacob love himself. Jacob seeks a tool in order to worship himself. He seeks an object to fulfill his physical appetite. Again, Jacob is not interested in talking when he enters into that tent. But as Niebuhr tells us, Jacob also seeks more. He also seeks to treat Rachel as God. Jacob looks to Rachel for complete joy, for complete fulfillment, validation, redemption, and salvation. Marriage and the physical intimacy that should be practiced in marriage alone are very good gifts from God, but they are not our greatest good. If you treat yourself as God, you will, like Jacob, instrumentalize the romantic partner. And if you treat them as God, you, like Jacob, will place a burden upon them that they cannot bear. You will be seeking both someone who ever satisfies your physical appetites, something impossible with our aging human bodies, and someone who can be your ultimate source of joy and security and meaning, something impossible for any mere human. And so these disordered desires make us think that the only way that we can be happy is if we are married. But however prevalent this might be in the church, this is not a Christian idea. The most fulfilled human that ever lived, Jesus Christ, was single. He did not marry. And so was the Apostle Paul, the very one who tells us that marriage is ultimately a picture of Christ and his church. 
And so sadly, to seek marriage as our greatest good is actually to ruin the very, very good gift of marriage. It's going to make us constantly discontent in our marriage. And so we find movies and books, so many things where we find people leaving their spouses for no other reason than a felt lack of fulfillment. We believe that if we are not experiencing that same feeling of being in love that we experienced during those first few months of dating, well, then we've made a mistake and we have no other choice than following our feelings and seeking someone else. But this is a lie. It destroys families and it leads endlessly from one unhappy relationship to another. And so we have to ask, how is it that we enjoy marriage most? Well, it's expecting a deep and lifelong commitment to and from another person, but not expecting marriage to be our salvation. So then, what does it mean then for Christ Jesus himself to be our bridegroom? Well, Christ actually is our salvation. And Christ is not a bridegroom who uses the body of another for his own benefit. He gives his body and blood for us. Jacob reduces Leah to her body in the dark, but Christ gives his body for us on the cross. And Christ is the bridegroom who loves the one who all others dismiss as unlovely. While Jacob, like Jacob, we might seek the Rachels of the world, but Christ seeks out the most unwanted of all, the Samaritan woman. But we are all this woman. Even if we look like Rachel on the outside, inside we all bear the burdens, the griefs, the sorrows, the sins of this woman. But Christ comes to us. Christ seeks us out. Christ weds himself to us. Jacob wrongly thought if he could marry Jacob, then he would be saved. However, if Christ marries us, then we actually would be saved. And Christ Jesus has done just this. When a man and woman marry, what is the man's becomes the woman's, and what is the woman's becomes the man's. If you're married, you're, you're not to have two different bank accounts. You're not to live in two different houses. You're holding these things together in common. And the reformer Martin Luther, he, he uses this image to speak of Christ in his church. Luther says, For if Christ is a bridegroom, he must take upon himself the things which are his bride's and bestow upon her the things that are his. Luther goes on to call faith the ring that unites us to Christ, our bridegroom. By faith, Christ takes all the sins that we are guilty of for making ourselves and others into God, and by faith, Christ gives us his own righteousness before God, making even the most unlovely parts of ourselves beautiful in the sight of God. Jacob ended up working 14 years for Rachel's hand in marriage, yet we, like the Samaritan woman, need only faith to receive Christ himself as our bridegroom. In Christ, God has wed us to himself, and he gives us the very love and delight and approval of God. 
something we may seek but could never find in even the greatest of human relationships. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that in Christ you have come and you have sought us. Lord, you've sought us in our unloveliness, in our sin, and you have made us lovely. You have made us beautiful in the eyes of God, our Father. Thank you, Father, for sending us your son. Thank you that he has done this, and thank you that we can receive all of this by placing our faith, by placing our trust in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.